As you remain standing, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17. And, and uh, we're going to read starting in verse 17 and then we'll jump down to verse 26 uh, after that as well. I enjoy these moments as a pastor. These moments that have a little bit of ceremony to them. Moments that of communion. I've said it many times, even the moments of baby dedications. And, and even weddings, sometimes even the funerals. Those moments have a, a element of, of, of that ceremony behind it, but I like to not just go through motions. I like to allow the presence of God to, to kind of sneak through uh, sometimes the pomp and the circumstance. Matthew chapter 26 tells the story of communion. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Look at your neighbor and say, that's the Passover. The disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into a city to such a man, and say unto him, Thy master saith, My time is at hand, and I will keep Passover at thy house with my disciples. The disciples did, and Jesus had appointed them. They made ready the Passover, and when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. Now let's fast forward the small talk around the table and the preparation and the tinkling of glasses. Jump down with me, if you will, to verse 26. Here's the real reason they were there. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I'd like to tell you today three reasons why I take communion. Three reasons why I take communion. Would you just bow your head? Would you pray? Heavenly Father, we're in your glory. We're in your presence, your house. And, and we understand that through your word, we don't take communion lightly. But Lord, I do believe it's far more than a thimble of juice and a dissolvable wafer. I think it's a deeper message than even that. And I pray that somewhere in the midst of all of this, that you would let your glory come in. And as we partake in communion, let us see your majesty and your power once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can be seated. As I go, let me, let me before I start on my, my three reasons, let me read to you from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, for I received of the Lord the same which was uh, uh, that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. We just read about this. And when he gave given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whoever shall eat of this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth unworthily and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. 
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. For when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with this world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. The Lord has a unique way of taking things that were, were part of the law. And then as he did so many times, Jesus said, I've not come to, to remove the law. I've not come to throw away the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And the communion supper that we take is not a standalone event. It happened on Passover. For while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, before the tenth plague had finally come to pass, the Lord gave instructions to Aaron and to Moses, saying, From this day forth, on this month, will be the first day of the year for you. And you'll announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If the family is too small, that, that the, the, the lamb or the goat would be too big, let them share it with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the side of the family, how much they can eat. Select either a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Do that on the tenth day. And then on the fourteenth day of the month, after you've taken special care of that chosen animal, you'll come and the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter their lamb or their goat at twilight. You either take some of the blood, smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they'll roast the, 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 the animal uh, over a fire and eat it with bitter, bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Don't eat any of the meat raw. Don't eat it boiled in water. The whole animal, including the legs and the head and even the internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Don't leave any of it until the next morning. Whatever you can't eat, burn. These are your instructions. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Carry your walking stick in your hand. And eat the meal with urgency, for it is the night of the Lord's Passover. For that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son, firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. And I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign. Marking the houses where you are staying, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you celebrate it as a special festival unto the Lord, a law for all times. Seven days the bread you eat must be without yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast. From your homes, anyone who eats bread made with yeast during these seven days will be cut off from the community of Israel on the first day. And again on the seventh, you're going to observe a holy day for a holy assembly. No work of any kind are done on those days except the preparation of food. Celebrate this festival of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For it reminds you that I brought your forces out of the land this very day. And the festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate it from generation to generation. When, when Jesus and the twelve disciples gathered there in that upper room, they did it because they were following the law of God to remember where God brought them from. 
Now the Lord's Supper carries two meanings. It's where God brought you from out of Egypt's bondage. But they didn't quite get it yet. It was just going to be a few hours, if you will, just a little bit until the blood that he said that the cup represented and the body that he said the bread represented, it would be just a little bit longer than the darkness of, a, of, a, of an un, uh, you know, a, a, not a normal day when the sun is hitting its face that Jesus would die on the cross. And then perhaps they would understand even more that it's not just he brought you out of bondage of Egypt, but he brought you out of bondage of a devil that had held its hand around humanity for so long. And it was going to be at that moment when the veil ripped in the temple. It was going to be at that moment with every drop of blood that fell out of holes pierced by spikes. It would be that moment that they could say it's far more than just saving my family out of Egypt. But he brought me out of this miry clay. And he set my feet on the rock to stay. And he put a song in my soul today. A song of praise. Hallelujah. And they could sing it for generations to come. I do communion. I take communion to remind me where he brought me from. I know some of you, you have those awesome testimonies. I mean, you can get up, and, and especially if, if maybe God's called you to preach, and, and, and you can share your testimony, and you can paint the picture of the pit of sin that God brought you out of, and I celebrate every moment of that. But what I've learned in my life and what the Bible teaches is there is no levels of sin. And the seven-year-old that gets the Holy Ghost at a kid's convention or a kid's service was brought out of the same depth of sin as some alcoholic that stumbles into church at 40 years old and walks up to the, to the, 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 the altar and prays through. That is the same level. And so you've got to understand in your mind, you don't do as the Pharisees did. I'm so glad I'm not. I'll pick on you, Brother Keith. You shared your testimony several times. I'm so glad I'm not like you. I mean, you know, I don't. I, I didn't do the drugs and the alcohol, and I didn't do all the things you did running around there. You know, I was a good Christian. I came from a good family. Uh, no, but I knelt down at an altar and I began to cry tears, even though it was a young life. I began to realize something happened. That the sin that I had committed by the time I was eight. Versus the sin that you'd commit. I think you were 18 or 20. Both of those sins would have brought us straight to a rotten hell. But Jesus came down. And he reached Thank down. Jesus. And he pulled me out of the mighty clay. And so you don't have a win in your life. You were saved. You better get in your mind. That every time I come into his presence. I remember the pit from which he brought me out. Yes.
By the way, some of us that were saved as kids, now maybe you didn't, no one knew it, but I can pretty much guarantee you somewhere by the time you were seven, eight, nine, when you got the Holy Ghost and got saved to the time you grew up, probably technically backstory. So sometimes it's not even the eight-year-old Brandon that I remember at an altar. Sometimes it's the 16-year-old Brandon. And it's the 23-year-old Brandon. Sometimes it's the 40-year-old Brandon. That I remember those moments where I kneel down. And I say, God, I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then I watch my heavenly father reach his hand down, even in a saved life, if you will. And I watch him deliver once again. The first reason I take communion is to remember the bondage that he brought me up. Matthew chapter 26, they were eating and they were doing that same thing. I, I don't know, but I've I, I played this story out. This would be, I think, maybe my 12th time to, at least in a year. I think some years we may have done it more than once, but this is at least my 12th time as pastor to do communion in this church. And I have portrayed it many different ways. I've, I've, I've acted it out. I think it was last year, if I'm not mistaken, is where I acted it out. Talked about Judas. So I know some of the things that happened. I know the stories. I know the talk. They said, who's the greatest? I get all that. But I have to think as good Jewish men, at least a little part of their night was spent talking about the Exodus. I don't know, maybe, maybe they had some of the Pentateuch, some of the Torah memorized and they quoted the story again. And so they themselves remembered the bondage they had brought out Something was new that moment in the upper room for a, a Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because God was telling them, not only do I want you to remember how low you were, but I want you to remember the gospel that delivers you out. When they ate the Passover first, they, they took a little lamb, year old, slit the lamb's throat, put the blood on the doorpost, roasted that lamb, ate that lamb. You have to think at some point in that Passover they thought about the sacrifice of the lamb. But do you notice that the focus of this supper, there's no lamb mentioned. I'm pretty confident they had meat. I'm confident that maybe something died. But if you notice, it's not at this moment that they talk about the lamb. Instead, Jesus says, as they were eating, he breaks the bread. He says, this is my body. And as he pours the cup, he says, this is my blood. There's going to be a New Testament here in a little bit. There'll be a new, and, and I use it in this term, there'll be a new will in Testament. And, and a testament is only uh, uh, begins to, to be in effect if someone dies. There is a testator. And so in a little bit, and I'm sure he tried to explain it, in a little bit, uh, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Bartholomew and Judas and Thaddeus, and I, I, I'm going to have to go away. Oh, I'm going to die. No, I'm, it's not going to be pretty. 
fact, some of you will deny me. I won't deny you, Lord. I'll stand by to the bitter end. No, before the rooster crows three times, you know that I do this. Judas has already ran out of the room. His sin weighed so heavy on him as they pointed themselves to the cross. There's power in the cross. It's undeniable. Even unbelievers seem to squirm when you talk about and consider the potential of the cross. I remember vividly, even though it's been now, uh, what, 19 years or will be 19 years, uh, I, I guess, where when 9-11 took place, David Brooks of the Weekly Standard reported during that time of a conniption fit that was being thrown by the American atheist, a group that was founded by the late Madeline Murray O'Hare. Because if you recall, it seems that when the World Trade Center collapsed, the force of that fall of those two massive skyscrapers, maybe it was the force or perhaps a supernatural force, fused two steel beams into the shape of a cross. It was in many of the pictures. Rubble everywhere, but standing higher than it seemed anything else was an old rugged cross. The atheist wanted the cross removed, but their passion and vehement denial and desire to have it removed actually revealed their faith in the power of the cross. For if the cross has no power, then why do you care if it stands there? If the cross has no reason, no, no purpose, then why are you so aggravated that it stands there in the middle of the rubble? It's because there's power in the cross. It's undeniable when I preach about the cross. It's potential. It's amazing. And when I gather around the Lord's table, I remember I'm made holy and I am made peace through the blood of the cross. The potential of the cross is that it can reconcile everyone to Christ. That old wooden cross that probably more than one person may have been crucified on. The cross, or at least the crucifixion, was not a one-time event. It had been done before. But it had never been done to the spotless lamb. Oh, there have been many bulls and goats and sheep that have been killed, but never the spotless lamb. But the greatest gift. I know Christmas has already passed, but see, I'm looking forward to Christmas. I know it's February, but I know how fast this, this uh, uh, year is going to fly by, and pretty soon I'll be standing here in my Christmas suit jacket, and I'll be celebrating the fact that we're going to sing Christmas carols again and just Really, in 10 months. Uh, uh, uh. I know we give gifts on Christmas, but the greatest gift is on Christ. What he hung on that. There's an excerpt of Sharon James' book celebrating a Christ centered Christmas, in which a young African boy listened to her, his Sunday school teacher, explain why Christians give gifts to each other on Christmas Day. That the gift is an expression of our joy over the birth of Jesus and friendship for one another. Smile. Later when Christmas Day came, the little boy brought his teacher a seashell of lustrous beauty. The teacher was kind of overwhelmed. He knew that 
little boy couldn't go buy it. He asked, she asked him, where did you get such a beautiful shell? And the young man, young boy said that I got it from the seashore. In fact, there's only one place that you can find these types of shells. And the teacher, as he began to explain, realized it came from a bay several miles away. The teacher was left speechless. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's wonderful. But you didn't have to do all that for me. The little boy, his eyes shone bright as he said, ah, long, long. That was part of it. That long journey from heaven to a manger. That long walk from a manger to a cross. A shorter walk, but yet so long for eternity from the cross to the grave. And then that explosion from the grave to heaven reminds me, God, why did you go to all the trouble? I think he would look at you and he would say, long walk was part of the gift. reason I take is to remind me of his sacrifice. Mel Gibson's iconic movie, The Passion of the Christ. There's an obscure detail that perhaps goes unnoticed in the crucifixion scene that most may not ever know unless you've read the story. See, when Jesus is being placed on the cross, the camera comes close and zooms in and you watch as a large spike is positioned on the outstretched hand of the actor that plays Jesus. A mallet comes into focus. And all you see is a rugged hand that swings to drive in the spike. All of those, it's a movie. It has artistic value. It tells the story. And all of those are things you would probably expect to see. But what you don't see is the face of the one who drives the nail. You never get a glimpse into the eyes or the heart that so emphatically pounds that hammer in, in, on the spike into the flesh coming to rest in the wood of the cross. You might be interested to know, and perhaps you do, that the one who drove that in the movie was not an actor, but rather it was the director himself, Mel Gibson. He chose, he said in some of the interviews, I didn't want anybody else to nail him except me. But I didn't want you to see the face of the one who put Jesus on the cross. I don't want you to know the identity of the one that had the gall to put the Son of God to death. The reason, Mel Gibson says, is because in reality, it's all of us that did it. That it's our face that put Jesus to death. It's not the Romans, it's not the Jews that you ought to blame, it's your sin. That nailed him to the cross. It's why Colossians 2 and verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave our sin, canceled the written code with all of its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it to the cross and nailed it to the cross. So today, as we come around the Lord's table, yes, we remember where he brought us out of. But I remember Jesus' sacrifice. A sacrifice even for the ones that drove the nail into his hand. And the third reason I take communion, I have to tell you a story first. The young Jewish man, by chance, riding on train with an older Jewish man. It was a long journey. 
they were strangers to one another. The old Jewish man simply sat quiet and it grated on the young Jewish man as they traveled. You know how silence gets deafening sometimes. He longed to have somebody to talk to. He longed, he squirmed in his seat, he twiddled his thumbs, he hummed to himself, he observed, and nothing seemed to move or get a reaction out of the old man. He just sat there and seat quietly, silently. Finally, the young man couldn't handle it any longer, and he tried to start a conversation. Excuse me, sir, what time is it? The old man never answered. What time is it? Still no answer. The young man's passion and anger began to rise. He thought to himself how rude and how ill-mannered he, he decided I won't be put off by the perceived insult. I'll ask him, sir, what time is it? Finally, the old man raised his head and sighed. And he responded to the inquiry with this dialogue. Son, this is fixing to be the last stop in the I don't know you, you don't know me. You're a stranger and the sun is setting and the Sabbath is about to be done. And it's obvious that you are a Jew as I'm I. And if I answer your question, then hospitality dictates that I must invite you to my home. And you are a handsome young man. And I have a beautiful daughter whom I love deeply. If you come to my home, you'll both fall in love. And you'll want to get married. So you've asked me a question that I shall not answer. He went back to his quietness. The young man got so aggravated, he stormed out of the seat, went up to the compartment ahead, and he fiddled in his seat until he finally came back and the impatience of that young man's heart who could not understand exactly what was happening had to go back and figure out exactly what was going on. And so he stormed back into it, planted himself right there, and he said, I don't understand why you can't simply tell me what time it is. The young man, the old man inside, he said, tell me, why would I need a son-in-law that can't afford a watch? <laughs> there is even to this day this many Jewish customs there's a ceremony that happens at the time of engagement and the time of betrothal if I could I would direct your attention back to the story of, of Joseph and Mary and it's hard for us to kind of wrap our mind around the betrothal period where you're you're betrothed but not married and we're trying to figure all that out. Maybe this will help. For there's a ceremony that would occur at the time of that engagement or that betrothal. Where the father of the bride would hand a cup of wine to the prospective bridegroom. The bridegroom would then drink part of the cup to symbolize his choice in the bride-to-be. And then the father would take that cup of betrothal and he would take it to the bride-to-be and she would have a choice. She could refuse the cup and the marriage would be off, perhaps her future being married as well. But if she drank of that cup of betrothal, she was symbolically saying, I will never drink of anyone's cup but his alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus drank from him. On the cross, Jesus drank from a cup. For communion 
is a symbolic way in which we drink from the cup and we place our life in relationship with his. And I invite you to listen to me very carefully. The ceremony, the cup of betrothal, was not the marriage. And so today, partaking in communion is not salvation. It's merely the symbolic gesture of coming into communion, into relationship, into a salvation that he offers. Why do I take communion? I take communion to remember the bondage that he brought me out. I take communion to remember the, the, the sacrifice that was required for that salvation. I take communion to remind him and me that I'm in love with my Savior and I'm in relationship with him and I don't want anything else. And so we stand today and we do as Paul said, we examine ourselves. We don't want to come and eat and drink unworthily. We pray the prayer of David, Psalms 51, verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from thine iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Would you listen to me for just a moment? Do you listen very closely? If you have been around communion at Lighthouse, you know this, but I want to tell you that Lighthouse believes anyone can take communion. It's not the act of salvation at all. In fact, I would, I would caution you, I would even warn you today that while there is an element, and we'll do it in just a moment, there is an element of making sure that we discern ourselves and we don't take it unworthily. The key tonight is that you do not judge yourself harshly. This is not the moment that you sit in the presence of a holy God and come to the conclusion that you're a horrible sinner without hope and you don't deserve it. No. It's rather a time for you to come to the conclusion and come to the instant understanding that the salvation and the, and the grace of God is here for you. Remember, partaking of communion does not mean you're saved. It merely represents, I know where I was. I'm thankful for what he's done. And I want to walk closer to him every day. So for that, if you can get to the place where you can examine yourselves and repent, I believe that's the key. It's true for communion. You take communion. If you can understand repentance and understand forgiveness. I got some more that I'll say here in a little bit. I want us just to take a moment. In fact, I don't mind if you kneel down. I don't mind if you sit down. I don't mind if you step out of your pew for a moment. I'm going to put this mic down and I'm going to kneel right here. And I'm going to pray for just a moment.